Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from the co-founder of NVIDIA, a graphic chip company that is rapidly becoming the intel of next-generation computing. This week we talked to an author and activist who is concerned about the way some web apps are eating into our time. Much of the web, driven by advertising, wants you to spend more time clicking on stuff as opposed to maybe doing what you were planning on doing. And so I think that we're in a period where we're adjusting and figuring out. I'm, you know, I'm hardly a Luddite, or at least I hope I'm not. But I do think we need a balance so we don't become degraded as a species. That was Tim Wu, author, activist, lawyer, professor at Columbia Law School, who came into the FT to talk to me during a recent visit to London. Tim, your book, The Attention Merchants, is a fascinating and pretty bleak book about the industrialization of human attention capture, as you call it. It's a kind of 100-year history of advertising and the changing technologies, formats and platforms that the industry has used. Why did you write the book? I think a mixture of personal and also interest-driven reasons. I was, when I wrote my last book, The Master Switch, very interested in the models that were driving things, the business models. And I've always thought the advertising model is unusual. You know, the idea that the customers are actually the product being resold. I wonder, where did that come from? <laughs> what is that all about? I've always been interested in advertising as well. I worked a little in advertising. The personal reason, I think, is that <laughs> I started noticing an inability to do things. I had this experience, maybe you've had it, where I went to write one email and then I noticed three hours had gone by and I don't know what was happening. And I found that my computer was increasingly not really my friend in terms of productivity, but was getting in the way. And so that was the personal concern, I think. You know, I'm someone who's very interested in free will and autonomy. I was like, how am I finding it hard to get stuff done with all these advanced technologies? And so that's what personally motivated me. Right. So you think the latest technology used in this attention capture market is qualitatively different from those that have gone before because it is more pervasive. That's right. I think there's been a big expansion in where someone is interested in trying to grab your attention and you know resell it to advertising. And mainly it's because of the role of Google and Facebook in our lives, just to be straightforward. You know, Facebook's main goal is to try to have you spend as much time as possible on the site uh, so they can sell you ads. And similarly with Google, And so I think that has really changed our day-to-day existence. And these are very different technologies from billboards or radio or television or film because they envelop you 24 hours a day. Right. Those other technologies in their time were also big moments. I'm not going to downplay something like primetime television, which at its height in the United States had 70 million viewers an evening on one show. That was pretty significant, too. But no, I think it is the pervasiveness. There were spheres of human activity, like socialization, that were essentially non-commercial, I think, that have become much more commercial since some of these web technologies. Right. And it's natural, I think, when any new technology comes in for people to worry about the effects of it. So Socrates worried about wax tablets, or the monks worried about the printing press. Is the worry the same in all these cases, or is there something different this time as well? Yeah, I think there's a sort of natural cycle where there needs to be a little bit of pushback. You know, we um, are trying to find what's acceptable or reasonable in a world where people bring their phones to bed (laughs) and wake up with them. So you have this, I mean, we're sort of somewhat like cyborgs now. We have these, you know, constant attachments. And in some ways they serve us as tools, but in some ways they have other motives. 
and I shouldn't only center uh, Facebook and Google, they're just the biggest, but you know, much of the web driven by advertising wants you to spend more time clicking on stuff as opposed to maybe doing what you were planning on doing. And so I think that we're in a period where we're adjusting and figuring out. I'm, you know, I'm hardly a Luddite, or at least I hope I'm not, but I do think we need a balance so we don't become degraded as a species. I think there's a risk of us being degraded both as a species and as a civilization. As a species, it amounts to us losing some of our greatest and most important capacities, the ability to reach very deep states of concentration and focus where we can do magnificent things. We're in danger of exchanging that for sort of homo distractus, away from homo sapiens, where we're not really capable of doing what we used to be able to do and where our decisions are constantly manipulated, not really ours. And is that what's happening in our political sphere at the moment? Well, politically, I think we have a slightly different problem, which is the contests for attention, particularly in American politics, have so completely transcended the question of the merits. I mean, does anyone really think Donald Trump is the most qualified person to be president of the United States? I mean, to say it is to refute it. But he is a master master of winning the attentional game. Frankly, the fact he's entered this conversation is another victory. Every headline, you know, every news show, I live in what I consider to be a free country, yet I see the great leader's face three times a day and some of his slogans. He has absolutely mastered domination of headlines. And that is, I think, a threat to civilization, or at least the ability for us to make decisions, because you would like to think that important decisions be more than a popularity contest or who can be the most dominating of the nation's attention. And I'm worried that we're losing our capacity to make good decisions. What about the upside of these technologies? I mean, the Facebooks or the Googles would say that it's an explicit contract that we have with our users. We do harvest the data and we sell it on to other people, but that is for their benefit. We are surfacing ads for them. We are giving them services for free. This is quite an acceptable contract between the user and the provider. Yeah, I just think we need to police that contract. I don't think there's anything wrong. Uh, it's actually the main contract in our lives right now, the deal where we get all this free stuff and in exchange exposed to ads. But even within that, you know, they're constantly changing the deal. So Google 10 years ago had very few ads. Now it's covered with them. Facebook started with very few. So they have this way of ramping up the price. And, you know, just like in a normal consumer relationship, if hamburgers were $1 at one point and then they quietly became $50, we'd say, you know, so we got it change the deal here a little bit. So the extent there's a contract, it's constantly changing. And I also think that, you know, attention is weird. It's kind of like a currency. You spend it and you're not always aware in the same way you're spending money of what it feels like to spend it and the effects on you as a person. And so I think something we need to look out for. And both Google and Facebook and the other companies are massive economic entities now. They're clearly publicly listed companies and they have a very clear financial motive for what they do. But they are also very unusual companies in that the founders of them have a very clear, explicit social mission. Do you think it's right to think of them as public companies like any other? Or do you think there is something above and beyond that which makes them really quite unusual entities in the history of capitalism? Yes. I mean, I spent some time at Google and, you know, it thought of itself very self-consciously as trying to be different and serve humanity, organize the world's information. I think they've slipped from those goals pretty severely. <laughs> they still do a great product. And, you know, without Google Maps, I'd be lost half the time. And I had a great admiration for their engineers. But the sad 
but true fact of both those companies is the last five years, they've not gotten much better for users. They've only gotten better for advertisers. And they have an enormous quantity of engineering talent devoted merely to getting people to click on ads, spend more time on site. There is a descent movement within Google, I think, former Google employees and former Facebook employees who are saying, you know, we used all these tricks and strategies to fool people into staying on site, almost like brainwashing little addiction triggers. They've done a lot of stuff which I think crosses the line of ethics. And for companies that prize themselves in being self-ethical, they've gone one step too far. Give me an example. Where have they crossed the line of ethics? I think in purposely designing products that they know are abusing various weaknesses of the human mind to keep it addicted. Such as? Eliminating stop cues is an example. So, you know, there's natural points where you will stop using the product, and they've done everything possible to iron those out. So people would probably, given a fair question, be like, okay, I'm done with Facebook. Instead, they stay another 15 minutes, half an hour. And so they kind of lose that time in a quasi-involuntary way. They even use techniques that, like, hypnotists use. (laughs) There's some dark stuff that's coming out from former Google and Facebook employees as to the techniques that are being used to seize attention. And, um, yeah, that's where I think it crosses the line. Okay. Is privacy dead? (laughs) Maybe not in Europe, but in the United States, I'd say it's pretty close. You know, I noticed it myself. I used to feel that, you know, the Internet was relatively a place where you could sort of express yourself freely. Now I feel terrified. I I always assume that every email I have will be read by somebody, and it's really inhibiting. (laughs) So I think that which we fear has happened, which is everyone is always afraid they're being watched. But I guess the Googles and the Facebooks would say, we are not interested in any way in you as an individual. We are interested in you as a demographic data point. There's a very big difference. Right. So I'm interested in the feeling of the user and whether they feel watched or not. Because I think the importance of privacy, to my mind, this is sort of a John Stuart Mill view, is that it allows you the freedom to be who you want to be, say what you want to say, not feel inhibited or, or scared. You know, whether Google's using in the aggregate or individual, The real crucial question to me is, are you feeling watched or not? And these days, I think most people feel they're watched. Now, some people don't care at all. There are some percentage of people who are just themselves and don't care. But I think a lot of people are inhibited. And I'm afraid it's almost worse than when your neighbors were watching you. It's always like you feel, well, maybe that'll come out somewhere. And maybe I shouldn't search for that. Or maybe this is going to be humiliating. And that's not the kind of freedom that I think we should have in an open society or that the Internet was designed to enable. But we kind of lived in that world for many centuries, didn't we? I mean, what privacy was there in a medieval village? Everyone knew everything about everyone else. So is privacy just a kind of temporary phenomenon that mankind has experienced? Well, you know, my aspirations we can do better than medieval <laughs> times. You know, maybe I'm a, an enlightenment uh, kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, there were also stocks back then. People were burned at the stake. So there's a few things I hope we'd get better than. And I think modern privacy, the value of it, again, is in the flourishing of the individual. Now, there's some people, as I said, who just don't care, but has a weird way of catching up with you. You know, employers see what you're doing. No one wants to post a picture of themselves like passed out on Facebook or something. And pictures are everywhere. You know, when you add to it the photography and videoing of everything, I just feel like we're almost living in a you know, not quite a totalitarian society, but one where there is a pervasive feeling of being watched. And yeah, just something I don't like. Do you think we're going to have a kind of slap our forehead moment in a few years and think, what the hell did we think we were doing giving all of our data away to other people to sell against us? Do you think there is going to be a crisis of conscience? If there's going to be a slap on the forehead moment, maybe in Europe, it'll be about privacy. Americans, 
people are always saying it's going to happen. No one will stand for this. The government's spying on people. But it doesn't seem to have quite that feeling for most people. I think our addiction to tech is what's going to cause a slap on the head moment. You know, at Google and Facebook, based on the attention merchants model, need you to be addicted to their products. And most of us, whether we'd like to admit it or not, are probably nursing one or more addictions, real addictions to tech. I mean, just look at your own life and just think how often you grab your phone or whatever it is or what apps you're addicted to. Sometimes I think we're like the Victorians who, you know, would kind of casually smoke opium or take cocaine if they were in a bad movement. And then suddenly they started noticing they were acting weird and, you know, becoming addicted. And I think that moment is more likely to happen. We're like, whoa. What happened to me? And then also this attention problem, which is not only attention span, but just not being able to do what you want to do. You know, let's say your hobby is. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Gardening or something or playing with your children. And you're like, well, I wanted to do that, but I ended up somehow trapped in this clicking on stuff. I got caught in the casino. I actually think it's happening. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I got to quit social media or, you know, reduce my internet time or, you know, install an ad blocker. I think that's actually happening right now. I heard the philosopher Daniel Dennett talking earlier this year, and he was talking about the effect it could have on our children. And he had this wonderful thought experiment, which philosophers tend to do, don't they? Which was, imagine that the Martians come down to Earth and they give all of our kids these fantastic new toys that they play with. And they're good and they're benign and we think they're relatively harmless. And then we discover after a few years that, in fact, our children have been kidnapped. They have been inculcated in a different culture, a different set of values to the ones that we believe, and we've got no understanding or control over what they're doing. Is that a good analogy, do you think? <laughs> it sort of sounds like the 60s in rock and roll. <laughs> you know, that's probably what people in the 60s said about, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Pied Pipers of their times. And so there's a natural sense of parents. I'm a parent, too. You know, we always think their children, for some reason, aren't enjoying the things they did. I do think it's very notable that most tech CEOs do not let their children use tech. You know, that says it all. Steve Jobs would never let his child use an iPad. <laughs> I'm a tech person. I don't let my children use almost anything. I think that says something. And something that begins with children tends to spread. So they don't use Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or anything? Well, uh, you know, an eight-month-old is... <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> and, and a three-and-a-half. The three-and-a-half-year-old does occasionally get access to an iPad, and she does love it but limited. It's like once a week or something. And, you know, I think that kind of thing spreads. You know, people cared about nutrition for their children before they started caring for themselves. I also believe there's a lot of amazing things that are possible with these technologies. I just go after the business model. The business model forces people to create tools which really are designed to serve two masters, us and advertisers. And I prefer tools that just serve you. <laughs> Now, a number of people are trying to work on re-empowering the consumer and giving them back their own data. And so Tim Berners-Lee at MIT and so on are working on the solid project. Do you think that's likely to happen or is there no business model that would power that revolution that we would all own our own data and then it's up to us to authorize other people to use it? So I'm interested in a slightly different, though related ethical movement within tech. 
which is to create tools and technologies that are more respectful of our mental processes and of our attention, as well as data. Data actually is not my primary concern. Maybe it's a good one. It's just not mine. I want, for example, and these exist, like a word processor that helps you to write, you know, or a computer that, generally speaking, is set up to do what you want to do and not sort of try to constantly pull you away towards other tasks. I think there is a growing demand for those kind of tools. I think companies like Apple in particular are in a good position to provide them. And notice Apple's also leading on privacy because they're not dependent on advertising. And, you know, the web got too intoxicated with the sense of free money that was advertising. And I think basically the chickens are coming home to roost. Now, in your book, you also point out that the government has at times intervened. So in the 1930s, the federal government intervened to prevent fake advertising and so on. Do you think there should be greater regulatory involvement? I've worked in government quite a few times. And the idea that, you know, you're going to have a federal rule on what an app looks like or something, that's pretty challenging. But the most extreme behavior, there's something I call attention theft, which is completely uncompensated transfers. So, for example, if you've been in an airplane and all of a sudden they start blowing ads at you and you can't get away and you're stuck, those things, I think that's abusive. You know, I think that that's a very precious resource just being taken for nothing. Otherwise, maybe at some point it would be appropriate to look at the most addictive addiction-causing tendencies. The research would have to be there. We'd have to think about it. But we do regulate other highly addictive substances. And maybe we would at least lean on the people who are creating the most addictive forms of tech. Now, you're a lawyer and clearly think about these things a lot. I was at a conference the other day, a number of competition officials, and I heard a German official saying that he thought privacy was a competition issue. Another European regulator said, well, maybe the issue of fake news is a competition issue because people are profiting from false advertising in a way. How elastic should the concept of competition policy be? That's a great question. I'm a competition person myself. My other identity is as an antitrust attorney. I'd say those are indirectly related. It is certainly the case that the market power of Google and Facebook puts them in a better position to do some of what they want. You know, imagine that there was social media that was much more protective of your privacy. Then you might be, oh, I'm leaving Facebook. They're too outrageous. I'm going to go to these ones. But there's no real alternative. I guess there's Snap and a few others. But I think the lack of competition compounds the problem. Now, I'd like to move on to net neutrality. And given that you invented the term, you're probably a better person to define what it is. Could you do that? Sure. So net neutrality is a principle that says your internet provider, the broadband company, cannot block sites, cannot upgrade some and simultaneously downgrade others, and cannot discriminate by essentially treating some content better and some content worse. Why is this a bad thing in your view? Well, the broadband providers are in this pivotal sort of gatekeeper role for the Internet. And, you know, we've experimented, especially in the United States, with having strong gatekeepers and weak gatekeepers. And as an innovation policy, it's been a lot better just to have the open Internet serve as a kind of an innovation forum where people try out whatever they can and reach their customers, as opposed to the cable and phone companies picking the winners and losers. So both have been tried, and I think that the record shows that the neutral internet's been a much more powerful economic tool. And the Trump administration are pushing for this legislation that would, in effect, scrap net neutrality, as I understand it. Right. So what is the impact of that going to be? So if you lived in the United States, you'd probably see two things. First, you would have a higher cable or phone bill, one way or another, because net neutrality gives more tools for raising the phone bills. 
The other thing is you'd see the cable and phone companies trying to tax some of the big internet giants, Google, Facebook, Netflix, companies like that. So they would have to recover those costs somewhere. So Netflix would probably become more expensive. And then the thing that the consumer wouldn't notice but would be, I think, in some ways the most serious impact, it would be harder for nonprofits and small startups to get their start because they have to do a deal somehow. It would further entrench the giants, the Facebook, Google, you know, Netflix. Now Netflix is a giant at the disadvantage, I think, of the small guys. And so, you know, the extent the consumer's gotten used to something new showing up every couple of years, you'd see less of that. And you think it would stifle innovation, therefore? Yeah, I think it would clearly stifle innovation. You know, we've had periods where we've had one company in charge of innovation, usually the phone company, and it's been much slower. What is the upside of the internet? I mean, as I mentioned at the start, it is quite a bleak book that you've written, but having access to all the world's published information at your fingertips is a phenomenal thing, isn't it? You know, I think I'm one of these people who is an idealist, which may be why the book is so dark in some ways. You know, as I grew up uh, with the internet, I was extremely early adopter, you know, in the early 80s. And so I feel that I'm someone who feels very deeply and personally the full promise of what this network can be and has seen it, you know, not by evil decisions, but sometimes by greed, sometimes by inadvertence, mainly by greed, not be all that it can be. That's what I'm concerned with. You know, I'm impressed, for example, with sites like Wikipedia, with Jimmy Wales, who realized some of the dangers he was facing and said, okay, we have to make sure we don't take advertising. Okay, I'm not going to become a billionaire. I mean, there's a big personal sacrifice. I think he's a hero right now, but not take advertising. And then foster a really strong community, which is going to keep the soul of Wikipedia strong. And too many other tech companies didn't do that. Look, Google's incredibly useful. And I, as a researcher, I completely depend on the internet. And it has brought a lot of things. I just think right now it faces a moment of great reckoning. I think the original early 2000s sense that world was really becoming a better place. I return again to the point that I don't think Facebook, Twitter, Google have really gotten better in the last five years and have sort of sat there and they've just added more and more ads, taken more of our time. They're stuck in a bad place. We can do better. We need to somehow reboot the web or start a different application that delivers more of what the true promise of the internet has. Now, a number of reviewers of your book commented that you had ended it in almost a kind of council of despair, that you have to abandon the Internet, you've got to have digital Sabbaths, you have to have a digital detox, you've got to walk away from it in order to focus deep attention on other issues. Is there not a case for fighting if you believe so strongly that it has an amazing power for good? Should we not be doing a lot more to reform it rather than giving up on it? Uh, maybe I believe in both, but also, you know, I believe there's two ways you reform anything, which is both to engage with it, but also threaten to leave. Now, I'm heartened by there is a movement to try to reform the web or, you know, the internet and the web are different. The web is just one application, a good application, but just one. And, you know, some of the things, you know, Netflix is an internet company and I think has provided a lot of value for a lot of people that is not on the web. You know, it's not a web company, but it's an internet company. So there may be more companies like that. Those are alternatives to the web. I think that a movement that pushes at tech to do better a movement of ourselves at all times, stressing that all of us need a little time away from addictive technologies, I think is important. But no, I'm not giving up the fight to make the, the web better. Right. What comes after the web, do you think? I mean, in the Master Switch, you point out the kind of telephone, radio, cinema, TV, they all seemed the 
only modern technology that we could have in the way that the web does now. Is there something that's going to come next? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, do we know what it is? That is a great question. So what is the next great deck clearing innovation that changes everything? I mean, we might be due. The internet, frankly, was invented in the 60s and 70s. You know, it's like me. It's getting old. <laughs> it certainly passed its adolescence and somewhere into middle age. Is it artificial intelligence? Is it blockchain? You know, if it was easy to know these things, the world would be profoundly different. But I do know there will be something else. In some ways, already the one thing that has been is, is the personable phones, other wearable technologies, which are much closer to our bodies. And maybe that's what will be the next thing, one way or another, figuring it out. It'll be just away from the personal computer towards you know our bodies. But in a way, you could imagine the attention merchants just seeing this as a fantastic new opportunity. It's just opening a new technological avenue for a lot of the attention merchants to write into, isn't it? Yes, I completely agree. The closer technology gets to our body, the more opportunity it has to manipulate us. And so the themes of my book become much more important when we talk about wearable technology. My book is fundamentally about autonomy and free will, about a planned life, deciding what you want to do and being able to achieve it. And, you know, in some ways, our wearable technology offers the possibility of almost superhuman status. We can be like superheroes. <laughs> we already in some ways are. But I would like to think that in these robot bodies of our and our superhero status, that we would be the ones actually in control. And that's why it's so important to have tools that are listening to us and not serving two masters. It's been a fascinating talk. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, it's been great. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>